Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Today is the second show in our series of discussions from the 25th African Union Summit held in Johannesburg, South Africa where heads of state and government of the 54 member states of the African Union congregated. This year's summit was held under the theme Women's Empowerment and Development Towards Agenda 2063, which is a 50-year framework that sets Africa on the path to achieving integration, prosperity, and peace. The Assembly adopted a declaration on 2015, Year of Women's Empowerment and Development, Towards Agenda 2063, which includes commitments to improve women's contribution and benefits from formal agriculture and agribusiness value chains, to enhance women's access to health, to push forward women's economic empowerment, to enhance the agenda on women, peace and security, to improve women's participation in governance, to increase women and girls' access to education, science and technology. Today we're talking to Mrs. Zaneeb Hawa-Bangura, the United Nations Undersecretary General, Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. Prior to this appointment, she served as Minister of Health and Sanitation in Sierra Leone, as well as Minister of Foreign Affairs in Sierra Leone. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Madam Undersecretary, can you please share with us a few of the landmarks in your career and when you understood that serving your country was a big part of your destiny? I think it started first and foremost when I actually was able to graduate from the university. My mother, or let me say my parents were both illiterate, they never went to school. And I actually come from an extremely poor background, went to school barefoot, you know, sometimes went to bed without food on an empty stomach. And my parents were never able to build their own house. We were being kept, being kicked from home to home because my parents couldn't pay the rent. But my mother always instilled in me that the only thing that can lift you out of this poverty and make you somebody is to have an education. So I think first the highlights was me graduating from university. The second was when I actually led the demonstration in my country to get the military back into the barracks after three decades of one party and military leadership. And I think that changed my destiny because then I realized I have a role in government. And so once I was able to have, to have the military organized a successful handing over to a civilian government for the first time in three decades, my life changed. I left my professional as an insurance executive. I decided to work in making sure that we have human rights entrenched in our constitution. We have the rule of law. We have good governance. In the center of it is actually the empowerment of women. That's the changing aspect. Of course, at the end of the after a couple of years, after several invitations to join government, I was made the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And in that position, I saw myself as the voice and the face of my country. So my job was to sell my country, was to change the dynamic, the narrative of my country. So therein, I knew that I was destined to do something bigger. And Madame, I read that in 1994, you started Women Organized for Morally Enlightened Nation, Women. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, I always have this philosophy. I said at the banquet table, there are no reserved seats. That's my philosophy in life. That as a woman, you don't have to wait to be called. 
women have the tendency, if they walk into a room, they sit on the sideline. Men sit right in front and they become the center of attention. We are very shy. So for me, rule number one, you are not invited to the table, you have to sit. Rule number two, you don't sit on the periphery. And rule number three, you don't wait to ask to, be, to, ask to talk. You make your point. And I grew up with that, saying that I have to say what I think is the right thing. I have to say it in the right place at the right time. And so my idea was to mobilize women to believe that you have to come together to change the country. So it was that organization that led the campaign for democracy in my country because we came to the realization that we had a lot of problems with women's rights because women's rights were enshrined in traditional law, in customary law, you know, so inheritance laws, property rights and rights to children, everything were actually dictated by those laws, not by the statute laws. And so I said, we will not fight for our rights if we don't have democracy, not within a military government. So we decided to fight to have democracy and be part of the process of democratization. So to be able to make sure all our rights are enshrined in the new constitution, in the new, in the new laws actually develop in the country. Aftermath of the, I don't want to call it a revolution because it wasn't a revolution. It was just fighting for democracy. And Madam Undersecretary, you've raised a very, very important point in terms of fighting for women's rights to ensure that everyone has equality in the country. And in your current role as UN Undersecretary for Sexual Violence in Conflict, one of the areas that I find in this role, and obviously this is your role, that it potentially you're put in the face of conflict where you have culture, tradition and religion all intertwined together. How do you think that we can find a silver lining to benefit women so that they can move forwards? I think the world has moved very fast because we have international laws. And I think the biggest challenge we have is how do we translate the UN resolutions into solutions on the ground? Because the United Nations Security Council has actually developed framework, groundbreaking that decides that, one, you have to respect women in peace and get them involved in peace building and peacemaking and put them on the table. And the, issue, the issue of conflict-related sexual violence is an international peace and security issue. War, sexual violence is a war crime. And so all of the resolutions that have been enacted, adopted at the Security Council, how do we change them? Make them into solutions on the ground. So my job is going into countries, looking at the legal framework, and saying, okay, rape is not our, what do we do? So I have a team, I call the team of experts, in sexual violence and the rule of law. They help and work with countries to change the laws. We not only change the laws, we train the police, because in domestic violence, the police is very key, because they must be able to investigate. They must be able to keep the evidence, collect it, keep it, protect the, the, the evidence and protect the victim. So it's a whole chain of interaction, and that's why we do country to country. So now, as uh, the special representative of the Secretary General on Sexual Violence in Conflict, after all the adoption of all of the Security Council resolution, which has been accepted by every country in the world, 
My job is moving from country to country where the problems are. Working with the military sometimes, working with the police, working with the judges, working with the parliamentarians, and getting the president at the highest level to understand that this is what you need to do. And him as a head of state, to change the perception. And that's what we're doing. So we have succeeded in countries like the DRC. We're working in South Sudan. We're working in Somalia. We're working in Central African Republic. We're working in Cote d'Ivoire. We're working in Mali. And because my mandate is global, I also work around the world. I work in Colombia. I work in Bosnia. I work in the Middle East. I just came back from a visit from the Middle East, which covers Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon. So that's the challenge we do. So until you get them to actually, they are part of the global the global chain, and they need to be able to respect the agreement they have agreed at the international level. And two points that come to mind in terms of what you're saying. One, that frequently rape is almost used as a tool of warfare in conflict countries, and all of those countries you mentioned are conflict countries. And the second element is that sometimes there's an understanding of what constitutes rape, of what constitutes attitudes and treatments of women, of what the norms are in those particular countries. For me, rape is a crime, and that's period. So it, it takes a various sexual violence, takes a various forms, sex, sexual slavery, forced prostitution, forced sterilization. There are a whole series of crimes related to sexual violence. And the important issue is to educate the government, the government to accept them, to enshrine them in their laws. And that you can say domestication. But that's the biggest challenge we have. So as I said, we have this team who go, for example, in, the, in, the, in the Colombia where we work, um, it's part of the constitution. We try to change the penal code. We also work with the judiciary to be able to make sure some of the decisions they take in the courts really reflect that action. For example, in, in Colombia, the most progressive aspect of the government is the judiciary. So you, it's an it's a issue that has to be addressed by everybody. It also has to be seen as a moral issue. The religious leaders have a role to play. Because at the end of the day, for me, the biggest challenge I say, how can somebody rape a three-month-old baby? How can somebody rape a six-month-old? So the society has to understand this is a societal problem. And all of us have to come together to, uh, to deal with it. It's curing the moral fabric. And looking at it from an education point of view, we've got the one aspect from government, but we also have the education of our population. And I found that from education is a, is a vital source of empowerment to empower individuals, to empower societies, but particularly for women. And I know that even basic levels of education, there's been various studies by UNESCO which show that benefits include greater control over fertility rates, reduced child mortality, improved health management, and an additional year of schooling equates to a 10% increase in earnings. Now, given all of your experience, both in the continent and across the globe, do you think we're doing enough to educate our women about these issues? No, I'm sorry, I'm afraid not enough. I think we still have a lot of work to do. Um, that's where the job, where in the resolution 2106, we actually made sure we included the protection of women leaders, NGOs. I think the role that women who are in the front line, especially women organizers, you know, human rights defenders, it's extremely important because the more vulnerable women become, 
the more difficult it is for other women to join. So we have to do everything to protect women. I think we have to start the education at the elementary level in schools. The teachers have a responsibility, the media have a responsibility. So this is not an issue that goes away suddenly in a country. I've seen it in my own country where I come Sierra Leone. You have to bring everybody together because it's not only an issue, a women's rights issue. It's a development issue. It's a health issue. It's a security issue. So if we look at it from that broader perspective, then we can understand that this is something that is very fundamental. It not only destroyed the individual, it's also destroyed the family. It's also a crime against the community. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today we're talking to Mrs. Zanib Khawa Bangura, the United Nations Undersecretary General, Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. Undersecretary, you spoke briefly on your forums today in terms of the personal transformation that you've witnessed in your country but also through from yourself within your own generation and one of the questions that I put to all of my guests who've made tremendous achievements is to understand some of those factors of success that have led to them becoming the woman that they are today so if you could please share with us what have been some of the key drivers of your success and some of the pivotal moments in your life when you were growing up and what influenced you the most? To me, I say the greatest, the greatest influence of my life and the driver in my life was my mother. My father was a Muslim cleric. My mother was illiterate. I was an only child to my mom. And my father found it extremely difficult to have a wife who can only have one child and who is a girl because he believes that I have to get married. So at some point in our life, I was 12 years old when my father decided that I needed to get married to drop out of school. My mom said no. My father said, well, you have to make the choice, your marriage or your daughter's education. My mother made the choice. So my father kicked us out. We left and went to my mother's village. My mother sold everything she had to get me an education. And even when opportunities came to her to support her, to get her to do business, she said, I'll use that money to educate my child because I know once she's educated, she will change my life. And that inspiration by my mother was actually what drove me to become what I am. And today, every part of my life, everywhere I go, when I celebrate my success, I celebrate the strength of my mother. So this is why I believe in the power of women. It's my mother that changed my life. My mother took the decision that I have to have an education. You know, so at the most difficult time, she sacrificed everything. She sacrificed her own marriage. She sacrificed her own happiness. She sacrificed her own luxuries because she wanted to give me an education. And I think if every mother in Africa makes it a matter of priority that my daughter has to go to school and she will get the best education. So that inspiration kept me kept me in class, made sure I was top of my class and got me everywhere I go. So for me, fighting for women's rights is part of my DNA. I was discriminated against before I was born and I saw discrimination throughout my life. And my mother said to me, don't feel, wherever you go, don't be afraid to say what you have to say. Don't be afraid to say the truth. 
as long as you're sure and you don't have to follow other people you just have to convince yourself so i grew up with a philosophy that failure is not an option it is not in my vocabulary whatever i do wherever i find myself i have to be the best and that has kept me going and has kept me doing all the things i need to do in my life your mother sounded like the most inspirational incredible woman under secretary you have held numerous positions high roles within your country and you have ultimately become a role model for many young women proving that with hard work and personal sacrifice that everything can be achieved can you please share with us some of the gender challenges that you've experienced and have overcome during your career you know i i grew up in a country where the laws were against us as women and in almost all of the position i took i was like the first person to be there even in government when i was in cabinet at one point i was the only woman it was extremely difficult but every time i sit in that position i don't see myself as an individual i see myself as a woman representing women and i said to myself if i fail the women have failed if i succeed everybody will respect women so i got to those positions to make sure i succeed and i don't go into those seats as a, going to think about gender issue i go there as an individual that is at par with all of the women it's not very easy i have to tell you because people discriminate against you they consider you they see you first and foremost as a woman a pretty face that is come to call the numbers and i always say to people i go into any job into any meeting with a lot of confidence and i walk before i get there and i think my message to both women if you are put in a position of authority and you sit there with men always make sure you are prepared always make sure you are prepared you do your homework to the best of your ability because they always see you as a woman they don't see you as an equal but when you open your mouth and you engage them and you put on the table issues that they have not thought about believe me they will leave that meeting with so much respect for you and they will come back to you but if you think because i'm a woman so they will give me preference adjust it and say anything i say then you have to realize that you're losing that position for all of the women after you so for you to be able to give other opportunity to women you have to excel beyond anybody's understanding and that way those men who are sitting with you on that table will end up respecting any woman they see and that leads me to another point which i think is very important where the working world in effect has been designed around what i term as man's hours the the traditional role of 9 to 5 but it really doesn't take into context the work that women do and often i think that in a way we're almost losing half of the world's best multitaskers because at the same time a woman is trying to manage her traditional expectations attending to the home trying to have a career develop her business and her timetable is just not structured appropriately what are your perspectives of this and do you think that in the 21st century it's about time that something was done in order to restructure and accommodate women's multiple roles it's very interesting you know one of the people i'm working with presently to address this issue is the prime minister of japan and he realized 
few years ago that the economy of Japan was not going to grow at the pace he wanted if he doesn't bring more women into the workforce. The women of Japan are some of the most educated women around the world. But they are being forced to make a choice to either stay at home or take a career. And more and more women are taking the option of staying home and having children. So if you actually take a career, you will not be able to have a family. And he realized that if he doesn't change the law and the attitude, Japan will not continue to progress. So he came with a decision that is going to change the culture and the way people think. And he had a first conference last year. Wow, he's going to have the second one this year in August in Japan. Basically, he brought women from all over the world who are high achievers, like the managing director of the IMF and um, Cherry Blair, and a lot of women to come and share their experience with the Japan women. And he found out that you also need to support the women. He's building over 400 daycare facilities. He's forcing all companies in the stock exchange in Japan to have women in the board to sit. You are right. We are forced to make difficult choices. And what we have done as women, we have worked very hard to be included in decision-making process. But we have not left some of the stereotype responsibility, bringing up children, taking care of the home. I think it's left with each an individual family to deal with it. I see husbands as partners, as friends. And I think when you make the choice to get married, you have to understand that you have to share the responsibility. And I know what you're saying because I remember in the heart of my profession, I give you one typical example. My son was performing in a play and I was traveling back home and he said to me, I want you to be there. I flew straight from the airport. My son was climbing up the stage. He had not seen me. I came and sat right in front. He turned around and I tell you the smile I saw on his face, I will never be able to pay for that smile. And when he was taking his exams in high school, his final exams, he said to me three months before the exam, he said, Mommy, I want you to be with me during the time. I canceled all my engagement for a month. I stayed home with him, worked with him in the papers, encouraged him and supported him to take the exams. But I couldn't have done that if I didn't have an husband who understood. And I think that's what we women, we fight so much in being the top of our... We forget that we're also human beings, that we're also mothers. And we have to encourage institutions and government to give that time to that flexibility. You know, and for me, I think when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs as well as Minister of Health, I encourage women, I support them, I ask them about their family. I mean, I had a staff who was under so much pressure, so much pressure. She was a single mother, but she was dating somebody. She would come home, she would come to the office very stressed, very tired, exhausted. And one day I sat her down and she burst out crying. I said, listen, you have to decide. I do not support any mother who sacrifices her child for a profession. But I think we can balance it. We, we, take, we tend to take too much responsibility on our own. We refuse to have our partners to share. We believe we are the only person who have the answers. I heard a wonderful expression the other day where someone said, we have a superwoman complex. 
Exactly. I agree with you. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to realize we're also human beings. You know, we're people. We need to ask. Women are afraid to ask for help. When they can't make it, they're afraid to talk because they don't want people to criticize them. And I think this is what we need to do. We need to ask other people for help when we know we cannot. We need to talk to our partners. We need them to, be, to engage. We don't take responsibility. We, see, we have to go to the children's school. We have to be one to get a bookshop for, to the bookshop to buy their books. We have to. No. We should also ask our partners to work with us and support us. And I think that's what we need to do. So I think we can balance it if you really know how to balance it. For me, you need to be able to accept that you cannot do everything. We're just human beings. You know, even with generators, I always say I compare that they break down. So if not, you have a mental breakdown. So it is important for us to realize that. I think you're absolutely right. We have to have those enabling factors in our lives, in our environments, to make everything work the way that we want it to. We'll take a short break. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today we're talking to Mrs. Zanib Khawa Bangura, the United Nations Undersecretary General, Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. You spoke briefly about having the leaders in Japan, and I recall a, a conversation with Christine Lagarde when she was talking about exactly the, the elements that were happening in Japan, that they have an aging culture, that they need to increase... Aging population. Aging, yep, aging population, and this whole initiative of looking at women in a different perspective. And I think in one of those conversations, they had the first lady speak, which again, was something that Japanese culture wasn't familiar with by having I, women there. I, I was at a meeting with, with Christine Lagao, and I think it was important, and the way the, that um, program was managed was because to bring Cherry Blair, who had been a first lady in the UK, who actually had sued her husband's government, and who made sure the husband actually partake in babysitting. So he, when she had her last son, the husband had to cut down his hours of work as prime minister. So she was on the stage explaining this. And the, prime minister, the wife of the prime minister of Japan had to talk about her own experience when they go on vacation, how the husband had to take the dustbin out, how you had to take the meals and prepare some of the food. And I, I listen, you could see the shock in the eyes of the old CEO of the big companies in Japan. They were like, what? Is that what the prime minister is doing? You know, and I think it was important for them to see that this actually could be done, that they need to support their wives. You know, and I think that that has changed. It's really made things change because I was told by some of the women in Japan that when this woman started playing a very high-profile role as first lady, there was a lot of criticism because they're using to have the wife. They never call them the first lady, the wife of the prime minister of Japan staying at home. Nobody sees her. But, you know, this one has, has said no way. So she has been a role model for the Japanese women. So a lot of Japanese women respect her. And Prime Minister Abe has appointed more women in government position as cabinet minister than any other prime minister in Japan. So he is leading the fight for the empowerment of women. He's, putting, he's not only talking about it. In Japan, he's spending $3 billion 
And in the rest of the world, total, with what is spent in Japan, it's about $6 billion for the empowerment of women because he believes in it. So what that says also, you have to have men who believe in it, who will support the fight. The last 50 years we've been talking to ourselves. It's high time we have more men, like the president of Rwanda, like the president of Kenya, who will change the laws and implement it and take the necessary action. And I think that will start changing things for us. Thank you for that. I think that's very enlightening. And keeping with the whole theme of leadership, building female leadership capacity is critically important for the future of women in our continent, for the future of women across the globe. As a woman who constantly works hard to succeed, or should I say twice as hard than men, how do you see female leadership in the continent, in Africa? I think it's coming up. You know, you have more and more women as foreign ministers, you have more women in parliament, you have more women in cabinet. I think it's going to come on, although, as I asked Mrs. Zuma was saying, the rate of treaty is going now to take us 80 years to get where we want to. So we really need to double. This is the reason why I'm sure Mrs. Zuma decided to actually have this year as the year of, the, of women in Africa because that's where it highlights, it gets us to focus on the issue, it gets us to development plan, action plan, it gets us to think these are the goals we want to achieve, how do we get there, what are the, the things that we put in place to be able to make sure we get the goal. So I think the more we concentrate, the more we work on it, the better it becomes. So the more women you have in leadership position, the more there will be inspiration to other women. So I think we're going very well, we're doing extremely well, but we have to do much more. And from an African perspective, I recently heard in terms of the Interparliamentary Union from a South African point of view, South Africa's ranked seventh in the world, but Rwanda and Senegal hold first and sixth positions respectively. Yet leading countries in so-called leading countries, first world nations, the USA, 72nd, the UK, 58th, France, 44th, and it makes me wonder how can such a low representation of women be permitted and still occur in those environments what's your point of view well you just tell them we're doing a lot of things better than most of this country and we should be proud as africans but we are not telling our own story i think that is what is important we've always had women leaders in africa in the home in the family in the community but we have never documented it. We have not respected it. Instead, we think more about presidents, prime ministers. And I think once we are able to use that knowledge and experience to actually influence the political level, you will see how Africa is moving forward. We have to tell our own story. We have a lot of things in which, as I said in the discussion I was having this afternoon, that even in the area of sexual violence, Africa has done more than any other continent. But we have not been able to tell that story, and that's what we need to do. And then people will start pointing fingers at us to, to learn from us. They need to learn from us. We have things that we have done that this country needs to learn from us. For me, that's the only explanation I have. And when we're looking at telling our own story, would you put that from a point of view of media, of increased communications, so that women are appropriately represented in the media and projected to the rest of the public? I think you have said it. I can't say it better than you have. We have to use modern technology 
we have to use the media, we have to tell our own story, use all the social media, the tools that have been developed to tell stories. We have to do it. We can't wait. The African is very, I don't want to say timid, is very shy. We, we are not people who think that when I say too much about myself, it means I'm singing my own praise and we're very humble as Africans. We want people to see us and appreciate us and acknowledge what we have done and that has to change. We'll be right back after this. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakataka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. Today we're talking to Mrs. Zanib Khawabangura, the United Nations Undersecretary General, Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. Undersecretary, we're coming to the end of our discussion, and I'd like it if, in closing the conversation, if you could please use this platform to send a message of hope to all the women in the continent that are listening, that due to circumstances, gender equality might not be first on their agenda, but more in terms of the priority would be taking care of the family, putting food on the table, would be a more pressurizing reality. I think all I can say to most women is that they have to think about themselves first. You know, you think about a woman when she cooks, she thinks about other people eating. When she wakes up in the morning, she thinks, what do I give my child to go to school? What does my husband take for lunch? Woman always puts herself first. Sorry, puts others first. If you transfer that into policy making, what a better society it will be. We always talk about peace negotiation. We always talk about all of the things. We always talk about designing policies. But because the people who are sitting there on the table who are making all the decisions are men. They think about themselves first. A woman has quality of nurturing, quality of care. These are qualities that are missing in governance, in society. African society today, or the world generally, has a morality crisis. The more women you have in positions of power, the more the society benefits from the qualities we as women bring into that society. We see Rwanda, we see a lot of other countries. So my say to women, you have to be part of the story. You have to be there on the table. You have to educate your children because the more educated a woman is, the more independent decisions she makes economically, politically. And when a woman has source of income, she brings 90% of it home to her family. Any increase in income to an African woman means a better standard of living for her family. You educate a woman, you educate a nation. You educate a man, you educate an individual. So anywhere you look around, anything you think about that makes a nation better, a society, those qualities you get from women. So I think we as women should not be feeling sorry for ourselves. We are not victims. We are agents of change. And we must make the change in our family, 
in our community, in our village, in our countries and in the continents of Africa. Thank you very much, Under Secretary. I think that's a vital message that we are agents of change. We're responsible for our own destiny. We're responsible for the future of our children. It's been a pleasure you joining us today and we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Humanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Madame Zanib Hawa Bangura, Under Secretary General of the United Nations for Sexual Violence in Conflict. Tune into the show next week as we continue our series of discussions from the 25th African Union Summit when we talk to Dr. Pelonomi Benson Motwoy, Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation for Botswana. <laughs>